0: On this episode of the Ask Worship Sound Guy podcast, it's Q and A time. We had a Q and A session over on Instagram where users submitted their questions and on this episode, we're gonna answer them. So before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to say a quick thank you to you. Yes, that's right. You listening in your car or at home or sneakily on your AirPods, trying not to let your boss see while you're at work. Thank you for making this podcast what it is and uh, for just being a part of this incredible community. I'm so excited and just so overwhelmed by all the response we've gotten to this um, and how it's been helping people. That just is what it's all about. And it's just our mission to get this uh, podcast and these resources into this the hands and ears of as many people in the church sound community as we possibly can. So, a big part of that is sharing and liking and reviewing on iTunes. So to those of you who share the podcast, thank you so much for doing that. You guys also know that uh, I read every single one of the reviews that you guys leave on iTunes. Um, it definitely is super encouraging to hear all those. And the iTunes review that I wanna read for you this week comes from user SoundDude1. I uh, Love that username, that's amazing. And he says, awesome podcast, great info, and really helpful podcast for veterans and noobs alike. And that really is our goal. We're hoping that uh, on this podcast, there's a little bit of something for everybody and that it's not just for veteran sound guys, it's not just for new sound guys, it's for anybody. It's not just for sound guys, it's for sound gals as well. It's for anybody who wants to make an impact in their church's audio program and make it better. So thank you again so much for listening and reviewing. Now let's get into your questions from our Instagram Q and A. All right, so this was the very first question we got, and uh, we got it within like 10 seconds of posting the story on Instagram. So it came from Nathaniel Craig, and he just simply asked, Midas or Behringer? Oh man, what a controversial topic. Um, (laughs) Well, first off, we do have to remember that Behringer actually purchased Midas, so technically they're all owned by the same company. So Behringer is Midas, Midas is Behringer a little bit, uh, that's why there's some crossover there. Um, I'm assuming that he's probably referring to the kind of debate between the Behringer X32 and the Midas M32, and which one of those might be better, and if there's a a big difference between them. So let's talk about that first, and then we'll get into some more. So a lot of people wonder what the big differences are between the X32 and the M32. There's certainly a lot of similarities, but let's talk about the differences. now. The first one that a lot of people bring up are the preamps. If you notice on the X32, it says that it contains Midas designed preamps. While if you look at the M32, it says that it specifically contains Midas preamps. So there's not a lot of information out there about exactly what that means. Like whether, you know, Behringer bought a Midas design when they were in the initial production of the console uh, before they had acquired Midas the company and used that design or, you know, what exactly it is. But I can tell you, having used both of the consoles pretty extensively, there is a difference. It's not a tremendous difference, but it's there. And I would say, especially if you're, uh, you know, having to do some higher gain work, like you're really having to beef up the signal with your preamp, you're gonna notice that the M32 preamp is a little less noisy, and it sounds a little more full, I think, especially as you increase the gain. Now, there are definitely some people out there who are like, oh man, you know, the X32 preamps are the worst, and like, you gotta get the M32 or it's just gonna sound horrible, and, I don't think that's true at all. Um, I mean, I have definitely made a lot of mixes that I am super happy with on the X32. I think the preamps are just fine, uh, especially since it it is a Midas design preamp. So I think they did a lot right with that. Um, You know, maybe it's not perfect. It's not maybe as good as the M32 preamps, but it still holds its own. Like, I've definitely heard preamps that are a lot worse, to be honest. So I think the X32 is just fine as far as preamp design goes. So the real difference to me when people are asking what's going on between the X32 and the M32 is the durability and longevity that you can expect out of the console. Um, Having worked on both a lot, I can definitely say like the knobs and the encoders on the M32 are a lot better. Uh, The faders feel better, everything just feels like a little bit more care has gone into the production of the console. Um, I will say I've definitely, as I've known a lot of people with M32s and X32s, I've seen a lot more people have to send in their X32s for repair or, you know, repair it themselves, whatever the case may be. Whereas the M32s seem to be lasting a lot longer. And I think that's definitely a big pro for the m 32 the other big thing is simply the design of the console. I happen to really like the way the M32 is laid out. Uh, I like how you've kind of got the, the steeper angle where uh, on the panel where the screen and the EQ controls are, and the space where the faders are is more flat, uh, whereas the X32 has got just kind of a gradual slope to the whole console. And it's fine, but it, it, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's sort of a personal preference thing anyway. But... I tend to like the M32 a little bit better in terms of just the console ergonomics. The other really big thing is that Midas, I think it was back in 2017, upped their warranty to 10 years, which is huge. I think Behringer is at like Three, maybe. Don't quote me on that, but go research it for yourself. I know it's longer with the M32. So if that's a concern for you, you know, having something that's covered under warranty for 10 years, that's a really big pro for Midas. Now, there is sort of the elephant in the room which is the Behringer wing. This is something we haven't talked a lot about yet but I'm really excited about this console. It's kind of starting to make its way out into the wild now and I'm very psyched about it. I think it's a really well designed and well laid out console. Uh, They took some stuff that had always been issues on the X32 and redesigned some things uh, in the wing that I think are just really really smart. Uh, The price point is right I think it's like 3,500 bucks where if still if you want to go buy uh, the M32 it's right at five grand so I think there's definitely something to be said for looking at the wing Uh, we'll definitely do more with the wing uh, coming up later but uh, that's something that I'm really excited about I think it's definitely worth looking into Then obviously on the other side of things, Midas makes some incredible professional level consoles. Um, You know, obviously their Pro Series are really, really excellent. Uh, That's been a a flagship console for a long, long time, Uh, all the different iterations of that. So, you know, if you're looking for something that's gonna be a very reliable touring console or something like that, um, or had the budget just to step up to that kind of next level of console, the Midas Pro Series is a great option. They've been around for a long time, uh, they've been really an industry standard for a long time, and there's a reason for that. They sound great, they work great, they're uh, pretty fun to use most of the time. And um, yeah, both those companies offer really excellent things um, in different markets, especially. So, I mean, if I was looking for a new console, like like, like I said, I might be looking at the wing. Uh, if I was looking for a touring console that just, you know, needs to hold up for a national tour, I'd be probably looking more at the Pro Series if it was between those two companies. So there's definitely uh, you know, a right fit for everybody within the console line there. So just uh, do a little more research, figure out what it is that you really need, and I think that'll tell you a lot about which console to get between those two companies. Our next question of the day comes from user Sound Guy Chris, and he asked, Hey guys, hope you're doing well. How much are you filtering out of each instrument? So that's a great question. Um, I love that he didn't just ask low filter or high filter because I want to talk about both because they're both really, really important. Let's start with the low-cut filter and uh, this is also known as the high-pass filter, whichever way you want to call it. Both do the same thing. They're chopping out some low-end frequencies and this is probably one of my favorite filters uh, that there is. Like, If if I could just pick one type of EQ to have, uh, it might be the low-cut filter. I use it all the time on almost every instrument. So let me tell you how I use it and why. So there are only a few things that I want to actually hear the very lowest of the low end from, like the sub lows, like things that I want to get into my subwoofers, like really feel in my chest. And typically those are going to be kick drum, bass guitar, and floor toms. And that's really about it. If we get into tracks, there might be a little bit more going on with a synth bass track or uh, some other kind of synth or keys track that might need to go down that low. But generally, everything else doesn't really need to be heard in the super low end. And here's why. It's because if you listen in and just kinda, you know, if you, if you solo out that frequency and just listen to it, all you're gonna hear from most instruments is rumble especially in a live environment there's just going to be stage noise and noise it's like the in vocals like the vibration of the mic stand or in guitars maybe you just kind of hear like sort of this Thuddy sound um, as the speaker cabinet resonates. And that's just stuff that doesn't really need to end up in the mix. It's not adding anything musically to the mix. That's always kind of my indicator for whether I want something as part of a mix. Is it adding to the musicality of the mix? Is it going to make the song better? And In most cases, super low-end stuff is not necessary to make the song better. Obviously, in those instances like I talked about, like kick drum, floor toms, uh, certain tracks, bass guitar, then yes, we definitely want all that low-end information in there for the most part. But, that said, there are even some times when I'll go in and filter kick drum or bass guitar, whatever is necessary to make it feel right. Now, a lot of that depends on the sound system that I'm on. If I'm on something where maybe the subs are a little bit underpowered for the room or for the rest of the PA, I'll do more filtering even in the instruments where I ideally would like the low end to be present. So if I'm running on, you know, a very small speaker system, it's not going to be able to support the full range of frequencies that are in a kick drum, for example. Um, Especially not when it's in the context of, you know, a mix with bass and tracks and all that kind of stuff. So... If I'm listening to the PA and I feel like, oh, the low end is really kind of falling apart and just there's, there's not enough headroom there or the speakers can't handle it, subs can't handle it. If I can't get like all the low end power that I want, I start to look at those low cut filters, uh, even on the low end instruments and try to evaluate what can I cut to tighten up my low end. I'd rather have a low end that's tight, but that doesn't go as deep rather than something that's trying to produce a whole lot of, you know, very sub-low-end, but is not successful in doing it. And that's something you run into pretty often, especially on maybe smaller church sound systems. Um, You know, there just isn't enough speaker and there there isn't enough PA to support That level of low end and rather than trying to do it, it's better just to sacrifice a little bit of the low end to keep it tight and not flubby or not muddy um, than it is to try to push the PA into doing something that it can't do. So, as always, you want to use your ear. Um, That's really the lesson. That's always the lesson, honestly. You want to listen to the PA, you can kind of feel what it's capable of, and then you can lean into that as much as you can, or maybe you need to back off a little bit to make it feel right and sit right in the room. Now, On the other end of the frequency spectrum, we've got probably the the lesser used filter, which is the high cut filter or the low pass filter. Now, this one is essentially doing the same thing. It's just cutting out the high end instead of the low end. So ideally in this situation, you might use it to do something like filtering fizz out of a guitar sound, or maybe uh, if there's too much air in a keys tone, or maybe uh, the top end of the cymbals are just a little bit too much much for the mix you can try to uh, filter a little bit of that out with a high cut filter and this is something that I actually like to use a lot because there are just like on the low end there are certain instruments that I want to speak in that high frequency range so maybe like 10k and above and there are certain instruments that don't really do a lot up there a great example of that is guitars uh, electric guitars don't really have a ton up there if you listen up there it's really just kind of this you know fizzy hissy kind of stuff and that's not really adding to the musicality of the song and so a lot of times i'll cut that out and you'd be surprised like it's you know there's not much up there to begin with but as you cut it out you'll suddenly notice wow the top end of my mix sounds really really clean and clear in a way that it didn't before and the reason for that is just because the elements that do need to speak up there like the symbols or like you know, the very top end of some airy vocals, those are suddenly free to do that. There's nothing up there like clogging up those highest of the high frequencies. So that is something I really like doing. Um, Now Chris's question was specifically how much, and that's a lot tougher. Um, (laughs) I can definitely tell you what instruments I like to cut on, but uh, it's a little bit harder to tell you how much, just because it's different in every circumstance. A general rule that I like to use, though, so when we're talking about how much to cut, it's usually kind of at what frequency are we going to cut. And so what I like to do is I will uh, put on some headphones or put my in-ears in, and I'll solo the instrument that I'm going to be cutting uh, out to my in-ears, and I'll gradually sweep the low cut or high cut filter up or down until I start to really notice it affecting the signal, and then I'll back it off just a little bit. So let's say on a kick drum I'll start sweeping it up, sweeping it up, and uh, you know, trying to tighten up my PA, but then at some point I'll notice that like the low end oomph of my kick drum is starting to be affected, and I don't want that. So that's when I'll start to back it back off just a little bit. Um, Same thing with like top end. If I'm doing guitars or whatever, um, I'll start to sweep that high cut filter down and you know, you won't hear too much, won't hear too much, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, the presence of my guitar just started to go away and then I'll back it off a little bit. And that's kind of my trick for getting it where it's just cutting out bad stuff and it's not cutting out anything that I really want to hear. That's just kind of a general starting place. It's worked really well for me. So try it there and then, you know, feel free to obviously use your ear. It's always the ear, not the gear. So use your ear and see what happens as you play around with it. You may find that it really opens up your mix in an unexpected way that's really awesome to listen to. So just try it and see what happens. Next up, we've got a question from Blaine A. Sauls. And he says, How do you practice mixing, especially if your board is not able to play back multi tracks? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. Because, like, as sound engineers, a lot of times we're in a situation where, um, you know, especially if you're a volunteer at church, maybe you're only there behind the mixing board on Sunday morning. And during that time, obviously, you're trying to mix a live band, you're trying to navigate through rehearsal and run through and services, so there's not really a lot of time to get there and practice. So you have gotta be a little bit creative with different ways to figure out how to get experience and how to practice. So I'll tell you what I really like, and um, this is actually great, if especially if you don't have a board that can play back multitracks. Um, all you need is what's called a DAW, or a Digital Audio Workstation. Now, this is basically a program that lets you load audio into it, and then you can mix that audio. It's basically just an, an audio processing program that runs on your computer. Uh, some examples of this, my favorite one is Pro Tools. That's what I've been using for gosh, like 15 years now. Um, But other ones out there, there's Cubase, there's Reaper, there's Studio One. Uh, On Mac, there's actually, uh, GarageBand is a free one. Uh, Audacity is another free one. That one's a little bit rough sometimes, Um, (laughs) but uh, you can still make it work. Um, There's Ableton Live, might be one you're familiar with. Lots of different options out there that are really, really great, and they'll all kind of do the same thing for our purposes. So one that I've actually just been experimenting with is called Traction Waveform Free. Uh, It's spelled T-R-A-C-K-T-I-O-N and the program is called Waveform Free. And uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out. And as the name suggests, it is free, which is awesome. Um, So you can use that to load up all your audio tracks and uh, mix along, they've got like some stock built in, you know, compression, EQ effects, just kind of your basic uh, audio tools that you can use. And that has been an amazing way for people to practice because it doesn't require you to even be at a mixing board. You can just be on your laptop at home and you can practice mixing a band. Now. The next thing that people ask is, where do I get multitracks from? Um, Cause obviously that's a big part of it too. Uh, you want to practice with something that is, you know, similar to what you would actually be mixing on a Sunday. And like Blaine, who asked the question, Noah was saying that his board doesn't do multitracks. So um, it's gonna be hard to record his band. So where can you get some multitracks and um, I've got one resource for you that I'd love to tell you about, which is our Sound Guy Essentials class. Um, it's an online course, comes with over six hours of video training, just all about live sound, all about how to mix and EQ and compress, run effects, how to balance a mix, everything you could want to know about running live sound. It's kind of our our flagship program. You can check it out at soundguyessentials.com. But one really awesome thing we packaged with it is a library of practice multitracks. And what's so cool about this is it gives you real hands-on experience with a good band. Uh, It's bands that I have personally tracked and uh, overseen the production of, uh, both at my home church and camps and other events that I've done. And we've package these up for you so you can just practice mixing them whether it's uh, playing it back through a console and mixing on that or downloading a free DAW like waveform and mixing in that and it's so cool just to be able to load in these tracks and just immediately start experimenting and mixing with it that's been uh, one of the coolest things even for me going back and playing with these is that I'll discover things that you know maybe I just didn't have an opportunity or didn't have time to try during an actual live mix event, but when I'm going back with these multi-tracks and practicing, I can just try Anything that I want and experiment and see what works and what doesn't, and you know what I can then bring into my next mix. And for me personally, that's been a huge way that I have grown as a mixer, so yeah, cannot recommend that enough. Like, get some practice tracks, either uh, if you want to record them yourself or if you want to use ours in our Sound Guy Essentials class, Uh, the link to that will also be in the show notes. So, just yeah, get some practice tracks, listen closely to what you're doing as you experiment with them, and you're gonna learn so much just by sitting down with practice tracks for even a few hours and just experimenting with it. I guarantee you, the next time you step behind the board, your mix will be better, just because you'll have a better idea of some techniques you can try, what sound sources should sound like. It's it's really a game changer. So I definitely encourage you to try that out and get practicing. Our next question from our Instagram Q and A comes from user Mrs. Bridgman who asks my church is wanting to start a 10 to 25 person choir FM transmitters as in-ears question mark, Mike question mark. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. So we're going to go through and talk about some different options for having a choir on stage. Now, this might be something that some of you are like, Oh, choir. I'm not, I'm not into that. We're, you know, contemporary church. We don't do that. Well, You might be surprised. Uh, (laughs) At our contemporary church, we have had on multiple occasions, like whether it's for special events like Christmas and Easter or just for kind of a special one-off song, instances where we have wanted to do a choir on stage uh, kind of as like maybe part of a performance piece for a song. So it's worth thinking about how you would do it just because it probably will come up at some point, whether it's an every week thing or just a special event thing. So let's talk about it. So the first part of the question was about using FM transmitters as in-ears, which is definitely an interesting way to go. Um, That's honestly something I've not thought of before. uh, But I guess in like kind of the era that we're in with having like, uh, you know, drive-ins, church services, and you can get like a a low-powered FM transmitter for that, um, you theoretically could do that. Now, there are a couple things to watch out for. Firstly, um, it may be more trouble than it's worth to have everyone on their own individual in-ears. I don't know a lot of choirs that are doing anything like that. Um, I guess there are a few very large choirs that do. I think the um, the choir that was traveling with uh, Kanye West's Sunday Service Production was doing all individual in-ears for their entire choir, which is like pretty crazy. But since we're talking like 15 to 20 people, that's probably an amount that would be better covered by one or two floor wedges. Uh, just to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of floor wedges, but there are some instances where they can be appropriate, and I think this might be one of those instances. So. That comes with its own challenges, like obviously uh, we're gonna talk about mics here in a second. So you wanna have a mic that is gonna be very good at off-axis rejection so that you're not getting feedback from those wedges. But if you can do that, I think you're going to be better off with just a couple of wedges than you would be with a more complicated in-ear solution, especially if you have other wireless gear in the church. um, There's just a lot of complications you can run into when you're introducing like um, even a low powered FM signal like near where you're running other wireless stuff. You can get a lot of interference. Um, Yeah, it's just uh, it's kind of opening a can of worms there that I would say is probably Not worth it. So to me, I would just run maybe one wedge per side, depending on kind of how wide and how deep your uh, choir space is. I would run wedges and I would definitely have, um, I'm assuming you're probably kind of more on on the analog side of things, maybe. So uh, maybe a good 31 band graphic EQ to help ring out any problem frequencies within those wedges would be really good. Um, And I think that's going to be an easier and better setup. As far as microphones go, there are a couple that I really, really like. The first one is the Shure MX-202B-C, and uh, basically that one is, it's a it's a hanging condenser microphone. It's got a cardioid pickup pattern, so hopefully that will reject any sound that's coming back uh, from your wedges. Uh, it has an inline preamplifier, 30 foot cable and it's on a four inch gooseneck so you can kind of angle it whichever way you want to kind of point it more at the choir. So. You can either hang that or run it up from the floor. Either way will work. Um, And they sound really good. They sound really natural and pretty easy to work with. The second one that I really like is the Acacia Liz choir mic. Uh, So that's really cool because it has a built-in 50 inch carbon fiber boom. So you can actually just mount this thing onto a regular straight stand. And then it's got this uh, boom that can come out that's built into essentially around the microphone cable to hold it in place and get it at the exact angle that you want. The other great thing about that one is that it's got a couple different interchangeable capsules for the mic. Um, So this way you can really dial it in, make sure that it's getting just the right amount of rejection um, for your wedges. I think it's got uh, omni, cardioid, and hypercardioid polar patterns. So that's gonna really, really help with being flexible in application for what you're trying to do with that. All right. So our last question of the day comes from user Chris Vilack. Hope I'm saying that correctly. And he asks, "How can I protect my hearing being in loud environments week after week mixing front of house?" Chris, that is a really, really good question, and I'm I'm so glad you're asking it because it's something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough within the live sound community. Um, we run in inherently loud environments, and that's gonna be risky to our hearing over time. And so we have to do a lot of work to protect our hearing and make sure that it's around for you know the rest of our lives so we can hear and do what we want to and have a good quality of life and not go deaf from running our mixes at 110 dB all the time. So, the very first thing that we as audio engineers have to be aware of is simply knowing what levels we're operating at. Um, if you go down to Radio Shack, you can grab a little decibel meter for I don't know twenty or thirty bucks and just keep it in front of house with you, and especially if you're in a new environment where you're not quite sure maybe how loud stuff is turn it on and check it. Most of the time, if you look at an exposure chart, uh, like maybe on OSHA or something like that, uh, it's measured with the DBA weighting, so make sure you turn your meter to that weighting, the DBA weighting, and uh, just check and see what you're running at. You might be surprised at how loud it is. Um, The next thing also is to then be aware of how long you can safely be exposed to those levels and making sure you're not getting near that exposure point. So just to put in perspective, uh, from the website hearsmart.org, which is an organization uh, that helps people protect their hearing in various venues and uh, other loud occupations, so they recommend that Once you get above the 94 dB point is when you really start to want to be concerned about how long you're being exposed. Uh, Below that, it's very unlikely at any exposure length to cause any permanent damage. But once you get over that, uh, the level at which damage can occur is pretty shocking. So for example, uh, they're saying an average pop rock concert is around 103 dB. I'd be willing to bet it's probably more than that, but uh, that might be a good reference point for churches. The safe exposure time for that decibel level is actually only about seven and a half minutes. So I don't know about you, but if you're playing a lot of Hillsong or maybe some Bethel bridges, you are getting to seven and a half minutes really quick. Um, And that can really take its toll after a while, especially when you kind of add up, you know, there's a rehearsal, there's a run through, there's two or three services. You're hearing that over and over again at uh, levels that could easily sustain for that long. It gets even more concerning if you're up around 106 dB, which uh, the exposure time for that is only about three and three quarters of a minute before hearing damage can occur. Now, there's something really interesting there, which is that 106 mark, you can actually get to that within ears. So that's really something that I think we have to look out for and that musicians also have to look out for as we use in-ears more and more. Like, uh, you know, back in the days of wedges, that was its own issue, but um, now we're on in-ears and a lot of times musicians are turning up their mixes way louder than they need to or... Even worse, they're taking out an ear and then having to crank their mix to like compensate in the one in-ear that is in, like that's just, that's the worst. Add some room mics or something, but just keep both in-ears in, that'll really, really help and allow you to turn down your mix lower. So I mean, remember, that's kind of the point of in-ears is that they're supposed to block out the sound from the stage and allow you to just focus on whatever you want to hear. So. I always encourage people as I'm monitor mixing for them, like, hey, you know, what are the things that are important for you to hear? That way, if I know what's important to them, I can make sure those elements are loud enough. And then, you know, I don't run into a situation where they're like, oh man, you know, I had to turn up my mix really, really loud because I love to hear, you know, the hi hat mic specifically or, you know, something weird that I didn't have up very loud in their mix. But they wanted it. And so they ended up turning up their whole mix just so they could hear that one thing. And I didn't know. So I always try as a responsible monitor engineer to try to make sure that I present uh, a mix that is great sounding at an appropriate volume level so that they can have the mix they want at the volume level that is safe. Over at front of house, on the other hand, it's a little more challenging because, you know, there's certain expectations for how loud a room should be run, um, you know, how much energy there needs to be in the room. So for front of house, what I really encourage is simply to take breaks, especially in a longer service, like maybe a camp or something like that. Like you have to go take a break. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to leave the room entirely. Like, you, you probably don't want to leave your console unattended while the band is playing. But what you can do is maybe bring some uh, in-ears with you, put them in, and just don't plug them into anything. Just use them for their isolation ability. Or even better, lots of companies like uh, 64 Ears, JH Audio, uh, tons of different ones, make custom-molded musicians earplugs. Those things are amazing. They'll cut down the volume level by an appropriate amount, uh, to kind of save your hearing. But they the whole point is they don't change how the music sounds. They just make it softer. So you probably use like uh, maybe those foam earplugs that you get at CVS or Walgreens and you put them in and it just, it sounds terrible. So obviously you can't mix with that. But with these musicians earplugs, you put them in and it basically sounds the same, just softer. So that's like my ultimate solution is like when you're, you know, at that exposure duration, put in your earplugs, mix with those for a while, especially if you're at a point in the service where maybe the band is just kind of having like free flow worship moment, they don't really like need a ton of interaction from you, use that time to rest your ears. It's so important, it'll save you in the long run and you'll be able to mix better for longer in your life if you take care of your ears while you have the chance. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Ask Worship Sound Guy podcast. Don't forget to join our private students Facebook group where you can ask questions and interact with over 3,000 other Worship Sound Guy students. It's really an amazing community, and we'd love for you to be a part of it if you're not already. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week, crank that bass. But also, watch your hearing. Okay, bye.